Good morning. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. Have I ever told you where I went to college? Yes, I am an esteemed graduate of the University of Colorado at Boulder. I don't know if you've heard of them. What a time to be alive. So yes, I did graduate from the number one university in the nation, the University of Colorado at Boulder, with a degree in broadcast journalism. And before I joined uh, the staff of Calvary about 16 years ago, I worked at a television station in Denver called KWGN in the newsroom, Channel 2 News. And my job at Channel 2 was to be an assignment editor. Assignment editors manage the flow of news content throughout the newsroom. So as stories come in, as breaking news happens, we would manage that. We would assign reporters and photographers to the stories that they would cover during the day. We would handle all of the live logistics for reporters to go live uh, during the news broadcast at night. So back in the day, um, you could go live in two ways. You could book time on a satellite truck, which was very expensive, but there were certain parts of the city where you could only get a satellite link, so we would handle all those logistics. And certain areas, you could go live via a microwave truck, which is one of those trucks that has a big, tall, uh, microwave thing that shoots to a big antenna. And so we would handle all those logistics and we would sit at a big desk which is up above kind of looking over the newsroom and the desk was filled with scanners where we would monitor the police and fire traffic of all the fire departments and police departments throughout the Denver metro area. And while we were listening to those, we were doing the, you know, the normal job of our day of uh, talking to photographers, of getting information from sources, of covering news, of managing all the stories that were coming in, of watching all the other stations in town. But you were always listening to the scanners and hoping that you would get interrupted from your day to day. Because an interruption on the scanner meant breaking news. And that's why you work in the news business or for the moments when everything gets crazy where you have to reassign your reporters and photographers and change the plans of your day. One morning, that's exactly what happened to us. It was probably 10 a.m. in the morning. It was a normal run-of-the-mill day in the newsroom. We had had our morning meeting. We had sent our teams out. We were covering, you know, normal stuff, like what's going on at the Capitol. Maybe there were some press conferences that we were covering. Maybe there were some uh, other human interest stories that we were covering. There was nothing that was super exciting about this day of news coverage until we got interrupted. My colleague and I were sitting at the desk, and he said to me, did you hear what I heard? I said, I think so. We rolled both of our chairs close to this one particular scanner and turned it up. And sure enough, the word that both of us had heard was hostage. That's one of those words where everything in the newsroom changes. All the plans you've made for the day go out the window. All the teams who are assigned to certain stories suddenly get reassigned. And so we are scrambling to reassign all of them. We're on the phone. We're Back in the day, we had pagers. We're paging them and telling them where they're going now. And we're getting all of our crews organized around this one particular area to cover this story. It totally changed the trajectory of that day at Channel 2. Now, that interruption only changed that day. The hostage was fine. She was released within minutes. The police came, arrested the bad guy. It was one of the stories on the news that night, but by the next day, it had been forgotten. That's what often happens in the news business. There's some big story, and then the next day, there's something new. 
something breaking, a new interruption. Sometimes those interruptions only last a day. Sometimes they may last a couple days, maybe even a couple weeks. But there's always something new. But for us, an interruption in our day-to-day can change the trajectory of our life. That's exactly what happened to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. He had a life-altering interruption in his normal day-to-day life. So grab a Bible and turn with me there to Exodus chapter 3. We're a few weeks into this series studying the book of Exodus. It's the story of God's people who have been enslaved by Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and it's the unfolding story of God's work to deliver these people from bondage to this land of promise, which he had promised to their forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and it's a work of God through a man named Moses. So Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called out to him from the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, 
the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians." This interruption in the life of Moses came in a normal day. It says in verse 1 that he was out tending the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This was the region where Moses had lived for 40 years, working for his father-in-law, Jethro. We met him uh, last week in chapter 2 where his name was Reuel. It was common in uh, ancient times for people to have different names. Reuel just means friend of God. His name throughout the rest of the book in, in Exodus is Jethro. He is a priest. But Moses works for him, keeping these flocks, and has for 40 years. Every day he's probably walked by these mountains, near this place, in this region, caring for these sheep. And today, something totally interrupts his normal day-to-day. Now, it says here that this is the mountain of God, but we have to remember that Moses is the one who's writing the book of Exodus. And so he's writing with all that he knows about what will happen at this mountain in his mind and describes it as such. There's no indication prior to this that anything spectacular has ever happened on this mountain. But this is the mountain where Moses will meet with God. Here in this chapter and throughout Exodus, Later, it's called Mount Sinai. Horeb is probably the mountain range that Mount Sinai exists in. So this is the place where God will come down and reveal the Ten Commandments. Tell Moses how to build the tabernacle where God will ultimately dwell. Seven times, Moses will ascend this mountain and meet with God. And so he calls it the mountain of God. And what does he notice that's unique in the middle of his normal morning? Chapter, uh, verse 2 says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. It probably was a normal occurrence for Moses to see a bush on fire out in the desert. The heat was so intense that it would have caught bushes on fire sort of spontaneously. But notice that even though we call this story the burning bush, that's not actually what's happening. It says, he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. The bush itself stays intact. The fire is burning in the midst of it, but it's not burning up the bush. And this causes Moses to check it out. He says, that's completely different than anything I have ever seen. And it says, I will turn aside to see this great sight. That just simply means, I'm going to go check out what is going on, because this is something I have never seen before. Now it begins here by saying, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Who is the angel of the Lord? 
The angel of the Lord is a character that we see throughout the Old Testament. He shows up several times, and he does what he does in this chapter. He reveals something about God. The word angel means messenger. So even though we translate it angel, I don't think we should think of the angel of the Lord as an angelic being per se. He is a messenger of God who speaks not only on behalf of God, but with the authority by which God speaks. In other circumstances, other stories, when we see uh, the angel of the Lord show up, people fall on their face and worship the angel of the Lord and he welcomes it, which is different than other angelic beings who tell people to stop worshiping them because they are not God. In fact, in verse 4, if you look in your text, it refers to the angel of the Lord both as the Lord, the divine name of God, which we'll look at in more detail later, as well as God himself. So the angel of the Lord is both a messenger of God, but also of the same essence as God. He has been sent by God from heaven to earth to reveal himself to Moses. Notice also as this unfolds that the angel of the Lord instructs Moses to remove his sandals, that he is standing on holy ground. He is in the presence of God. What being is distinct from God, but also of the same essence as God? Who can you think of that's like that? Jesus. I think the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is God's divine mouthpiece. He is the one who comes and reveals the will of God to people. And he is God himself, the angel of the Lord. It's interesting that he reveals himself in a flame of fire. Fire will be a theme throughout Exodus where God will reveal himself, the pillar of fire. And fire is what draws Moses to this mountain this day. What causes him to change his plans for the day. A fire that was different and distinct from any other one he had ever seen. There's really nothing like fire to draw a crowd. Think of a campfire when you go camping. Everybody gathers around it and loves being around a beautiful fire. It draws you in. It's captivating and interesting. In many ways, a fire is entertaining. You can just stare at a fire for hours without getting bored. I think fire is kind of like the ancient version of Netflix. <laughs> you can just stare mindlessly at it for hours. There's always something entertaining to watch. You're never bored when there's a fire. And think about what it would have been like in ancient times. After a long day's work, you would have built a fire, called your friends, hey guys, come on over, we are going to binge watch this fire together. It's a constant source of entertainment. And fire has a unique ability to draw us in. But the minute that a campfire leaves the friendly confines of a campfire ring and jumps to nearby trees or bushes and becomes a wildfire, that friendly fire no longer draws us in, but it freaks us out. Because a fire is simultaneously friendly and frightening. It draws us to come closer, but not too close. 
in case we get burned. You know, if you've ever gone camping with the kids and they're around the campfire, you're constantly monitoring their proximity to the fire. Like, don't get too close. Just, you know, we need a longer stick for the s'more. You can't get that close to the fire. Moses himself is drawn to the fire, but look at what it says about him in verse 6. It says, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. As Moses approaches this fire, he has reverent fear for God. Now, we saw last week there are two types of fear in the Bible. Fear that can be described as dread, like terror. That might be what Moses was feeling. But the other way that the Bible describes fear is devotion, like a reverent awe. We saw these beautiful God-fearing women last week who protected these Hebrew boys from this horrible edict of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who had publicly proclaimed that all Hebrew boys should be killed, and they feared God. They looked to Him first and foremost in their life. They were devoted to Him and followed His word, not the word of the king. Now, Moses doesn't know God yet, and it's common that we would be afraid of things that we're not familiar with. And I think that's what God is about to do. He's about to introduce Himself to Moses to help Moses no longer have dread of God, but become a devoted deliverer that God will raise up to accomplish His purposes. Now, when God steps in in our story this week, we might have expected, based on what we saw last week, where the cries for rescue had risen up to God, we might have thought that God would step in with an army of angels, that there would have been some worldwide spectacle of power and glory as God came on the scene. But instead, it's kind of on a small scale. Just God and Moses, just two people, no witnesses, no crowd, no audience, just he and Moses. Now, certainly the fire and the bush that is not burned is extraordinary and miraculous, but it's still just God and Moses one-on-one as God steps in to help rescue his people. You know, no matter when or where it happens, when God steps in and interrupts your life, it's a miracle. And I wonder for some of you who are here today, if God has been trying to get your attention. If God's been trying to interrupt your normal routine, your normal day-to-day, by calling out to you, by calling your name like He did, Moses, Moses, come to me. Draw close to me. I want to reveal myself to you. Maybe you say, I I don't have time for that, God. I've got to deal with all this stuff I've got to do today. Imagine everything that Moses had on his calendar for the day. He had to water the sheep. He had to care for them. He had to provide for his family. He probably had to hunt. All of the things that he had planned suddenly get completely interrupted by this work of God. And some of us just live our lives worried that our plans might be disrupted by what God wants to do with us. Or we say, you know, I'm too old to change. You can't teach a a dog new tricks, right? An old dog new tricks. Moses was 80 years old when God interrupted his life. Imagine all of the day-to-day routine that he had gone through. First, growing up in Egypt. Then sort of being sent in exile out to Midian raising a family, 
doing the day-to-day normal routine of life, and then suddenly God steps in. And he's afraid. Afraid of this God that he didn't know yet, he didn't have a personal relationship with yet, but God's about to introduce himself to Moses in verse 14. And here he says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the divine name of God revealed to Moses. It's the first time in the Bible that it's recorded that God has directly revealed this name to another person. And we translate it this way, I am who I am. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, anytime you see the word Lord in all capital letters, it is this divine name. In Hebrew, it's four consonants, Y-H-W-H, commonly pronounced Yahweh. And it simply means, I am who I am, which is sort of circular. Like, what does that mean? I be who I be, I will who I will, I am who I am. It is God's personal name. It's not a title. It's not a nickname. It's his personal name like each of us has. So why does it matter so much that we would know the personal name of God? David tells us in Psalm chapter 9 that those who know your name, God, put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, there's the divine name, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know your name put their trust in you. When we know God, when we have a personal relationship with him, we place our trust in him. And God wants to be known by us. He reveals himself to us personally. He's not distant. He is not far away. He is a personal God who gives us a name by which we can call him. He is the God who makes himself known through this divine name. Names tell a story. They help us understand someone's identity. And when we get to know them, their name communicates to us who they are. Companies know this. This is why they spend millions and millions of dollars building their brand name. And think about some of the greatest brand names that have ever existed. When you hear them, you instantly know who they are, what they do, what they sell, what kind of products they have, what kind of company they are, simply because you know their name. Names like Apple, names like Amazon, like Kodak, IBM, Rolex, or like the name Mercedes. That communicates something to you, doesn't it? It tells a story through a name. This week in Boulder, I saw a Mercedes AMG GT Roadster in cardinal red metallic. It is the kind of car that when you see it, you stop what you're doing to watch it drive by. It can go zero to 60 in 3.6 seconds. It has 550 horsepower and 518 pound-feet of torque. It comes very well equipped for the low, low price of $158,000. 
Why does this car exist? Why does Mercedes make this car? They can't sell very many of them. It must be one of the lowest selling Mercedes by volume. There's not very many people who can afford $168,000 for a car that just has two seats, right? Mercedes sells this car because, it what, because of what it communicates about their name. Because this car is a Mercedes, every other Mercedes suddenly seems sportier, feels faster, and looks more luxurious. Car makers call this a halo car. It makes their entire brand name stronger simply because the car exists. And when you see it driving down the road, you have absolutely no question what kind of car it is because of this extraordinarily large head badge on the front. And if you know what that symbol is, you know that car is a Mercedes. Now compare the name Mercedes to the name Pinto. This is a 1978 Ford Pinto cruising wagon, also in red. It goes zero to 60 in 12.9 seconds. It has 88 horsepower, 118 pound-feet of torque. When it was commissioned by Lee Iacocca to be built, the goal was that it would weigh less than 2,000 pounds and cost less than $2,000. It was a runaway success until the headlines of what would happen when this car was in a slow-speed rear-end collision. Because of the rushed design and a faulty gas tank design, this car would explode upon impact. And literally hundreds of people died or were killed uh, or were severely injured because of this faulty design. And so now the name Pinto tells the story of failure. God's name tells a story too. It tells of who he is, who he has proven himself to be the mighty acts that he accomplishes throughout the scriptures. One commentator has said that the book of Exodus basically just explains verse 14 that we looked at. Basically is an explanation of the divine name of God because it fills in the entire story, the history of who God is, of what he has accomplished, and it brings meaning and depth to his name. All the details of the story in this book fill in are filled in by God and His work through His character, through His attributes. Exodus chapter 3, this is the reason why I wanted to read all of it at the beginning of the message today, because Exodus chapter 3 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible to help us understand the character of God. It is just filled with details about who God is. Beyond just the revelation of His name, it is the revelation of the character of God, of who He is. And all of those character traits, all of those attributes give depth and meaning to His name. Like when God demonstrates, I am self-sufficient. In verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. God is self-sufficient. If you know what makes a fire burn, you know about the fire triangle. It needs fuel, 
It needs heat. It needs oxygen in order to burn. This fire needs none of those things. It is self-sufficient on its own. It is a character trait of God. That he needs nothing outside of himself to exist. He and he alone has existed forever and ever. He needs nothing to bring him into being. He always has and always will be. I am who I am, he says. I am self-sufficient. Now, one of our major cultural problems in our day is that we try and remake God in our image. He has made us in His, and we've basically spent the rest of human history trying to remake God into a way that we can understand Him. But this is one of the chief characteristics of who God is. He is self-sufficient, self-existent, needs nothing outside of Himself to exist and to reign and to rule. This fire needs no fuel. God fuels Himself, and therefore, He determines who He is. We don't determine who He is. He tells us and reveals all of His character traits through His Word. Everything we need to know about Him is contained in the pages of this book. There's nothing that we can learn about God outside of this. And there's no way that we can determine on our own who God is because He is self-sufficient, self-existent, self-deterministic. In verse 5, we see God say, I am holy. Remember when He says to Moses, the place on which you are standing is holy ground? Simply because I am present here, Moses, this place is now holy. I am set apart, distinct, altogether different than anything you have ever experienced than any human being, than the beauty of this mountain, than the glory of creation. I am in a class by myself. I am holy, God says. Now contrast that with what he says in verse 8. He says, I am with you, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. How is it possible that a holy God could come down and dwell amongst us, be with us, be in the presence of sinful, broken humans. God even said it in, in that previous verse, do not come near me. Take your sandals off, for the place you are standing is holy ground. But God has come down. He is with us. This is the character trait we refer to as imminence, that God is near us and with us and amongst us. Remember one of the names of Jesus, Emmanuel? God is with us. God comes into our presence, into the places where we are, and reveals Himself. Now, the way He can do that, being a holy God, is by calling us to live obedient lives, to acknowledge His holiness. That's what Moses does as he removes his sandals. He is acknowledging the holiness of God, that God is in a class by himself, and that Moses cannot be in his presence without doing something to be worthy of it. We saw last week in verse 7 that God is with us as he... Oop, go back. Sorry, Monica. I ruined it. Here we go. Ready? Perfect. Oh. 
And there we go. <laughs> no. Here we go. Yes. It says in verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Remember last week when we saw that God had heard their cry for rescue from slavery? That God had remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? We saw God make reference of that several times in this text. That God had seen his people and that God knew. God knows. He is with us. He is familiar with our sufferings. He knows what's going on in our lives. I am with you, he says. All right, next. I am all-knowing. Verse 19. But I know, God says, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God knows everything before it will happen. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows what Pharaoh will do and won't do before it even happens. He's not caught off guard by the ways that Pharaoh will not allow his people to go over and over and over again. He promises that that will happen because God is all-knowing. This verse also tells us that God is all-powerful. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God will demonstrate his power through the work of the plagues. He will demonstrate his power and authority over nature. He will demonstrate his power and authority over the king of Egypt, over the most powerful nation that had ever existed up to that time. God will demonstrate that he has all the power over it. And finally, in verse 15, God says, I am eternal. He says to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God is eternal. God has always existed and will always exist. This is my name forever, he says, forever and ever. God has no beginning and no end. He is eternal, and his name will exist forever. His name held such incredible importance in the lives of the people of Israel, of his people, that eventually they would no longer utter the divine name Yahweh. They didn't want to take it in vain. And so it became replaced by the word Lord. When they would come to read it, instead of saying Yahweh, they would say the word for Lord, so as not to accidentally take the Lord's name in vain. Imagine all of the character attributes that the people of God knew were represented by his name. We've gone through just a few in one single chapter of the scripture. There's like 1,200 chapters in the entire Bible, all bringing depth and meaning to the divine name of God. It means so much to us and to God's people. It tells his story. And he says his name is to be remembered throughout all generations. 
Part of the story that God's name tells is the story of this family that he mentions, that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This special relationship that God had with this family is so important to the understanding of his name and the way that this family would reveal his name and his power and his character to all nations. 1,500 years after Moses met God on the mountain, Jesus was in Jerusalem, and he was having a discussion with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. To be fair, discussion probably isn't the right word. It was more of an argument, because they were talking about this family promise that God had made. And Jesus told them that anyone who kept his word would never die. And they brought up Abraham. They said, wait, 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 wait a second. You're telling us that anyone who keeps your word would never die. Yet Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these people knew God. They saw him. They spoke with him. And yet they died. Who are you claiming to be? Are you greater than our father Abraham? The one who God met with? The father of this great nation? The one who God made an irrevocable promise to? The Pharisees said to Jesus, you're possessed by a demon. How else could you say something crazy like this? You're saying that anyone who keeps your word will never die. But Abraham died. Moses died. Are you greater than them, Jesus? Greater than these men who God directly revealed himself to? And Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Who do you think you are, Jesus? And Jesus responds this way in John 8, 58. He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Can you imagine why they wanted to kill him? The claim that Jesus is making here of claiming the divine name means that all of these character traits of God, the short list that we looked at and the extensive list that is throughout the scriptures, he is claiming all of those character traits. He is claiming equality with God. He is claiming the story that is told through the name of God is his story. He is saying, without question, to the leaders of his day, I am the great I am. Now, what do you do with that? What do you do with that statement? You cannot just leave this room and think, well, that was kind of interesting. That is a claim. That is a statement that demands a response in your life. Now, the Pharisees decided to kill Jesus for what he said. But God calls us, invites us to believe that this statement about Jesus is true. That all of these attributes that he is claiming, that all the truth about who God is, he, he is God himself. And what do we do? What do we do to receive that, to believe that, to say, Jesus, 
I believe you are who you say you are. It's a simple step of obedience. Just like God called Moses to take off his shoes in front of him. God asks us to do something simple too when God reveals himself to us. In Romans 10.9, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is God calling to you, my friend? Calling your name to say, believe in my son. Call on his name. Call him Lord. Declare to him, I believe, Jesus, you are the great I am. If you believe that, if you confess that, if you say that to God, God promises that you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are self-sufficient. You are holy. Jesus, you are with us. You have come near to us. Jesus, you are all-knowing, all-powerful. You are eternal. And we call upon your name. For any heart, God, in this room who has yet to surrender to your Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would do a mighty work in their heart, that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would interrupt their life, God, and you would redirect it to devotion to your Son, Jesus Christ, that they would acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior, as the great I Am. For your glory, God, we pray in your holy name. Amen.